Welcome everybody to the new episode of the Unbalanced Note interview series. What a wonderful, wonderful show we have in store for you. I'm Brian Kluger and I am joined by the host with the most, the man who I'm straight out of Dallas, Texas with, who I want to go to oblivion and live in a legacy of Tron with, Mark Chaffer. Dini, how are you doing, buddy? Oh, I'm feeling so good. I'm all ones and zeros right now. I'm pumped. Uh, I'm pumped too because we have a fantastic guest on the show today, an amazing, legendary U.S. champion of music and film scores, maybe the distant cousin of Martin Scorsese, the one and only Joe Trapanese. How are you doing, sir? I'm really good. How are you? Doing very well. We're so happy to have you on the show today. How's everything in Los Angeles with you today? Thankfully, like uh, every other composer, it seems uh, locked down, and uh, that's kind of normal for us. We're locked away in the studio delivering music, kind of unaware, blissfully trying to maintain a uh, lack of awareness of what's going on outside the studio. So I just finished a cue right before I hopped on this call, and as soon as we're, we're, uh, we're done with the interview, I go back to write more cues. So, you know, can't complain. Can't complain. I'm hearing you. So you, you've done so much cool stuff from, from the Raid, Raid 2, Straight Outta Compton, Oblivion, Tron Legacy, Stuber, Jean-Claude Van Johnson. We're going to get to all that in a little bit. But first, I want to ask you, Joe, where did it all begin for you with music? Was it something you heard on the radio? Was it something your parents let you listen to? Where did it all begin for you in music? That's a great question. And, and for me, it's a bit of a complicated question because uh, my parents wanted me to learn an instrument and my dad wanted me to learn the violin because one of his brothers played violin, but I thought the violin was stupid. So I want to play, you know, fine, I'll play the piano just to kind of make him happy. And I played the piano for a few years, just kind of like any other kid, you know, whose parents make them take piano lessons. Um, but it, it was uh, a few years later when, um, you know, I started listening to film scores that I started to think, oh, like, this is actually really cool. Like this, this thing that I'm hearing right now, what is it? And I, I started learning about the orchestra and I had uh, played a little bit in my school bands playing trombone with some friends and I started playing in youth orchestras. So it was like this, it, purely a hobby slash, you know, something my parents kind of forced me to do. And in fact, I stopped taking piano lessons for a while because they realized I wasn't interested anymore. But when I started listening to film music again and started getting into, you know, what we do, you know, or what we do as film composers, what I do now, when I started to realize like how cool that is, I started to say, well, I want to get back into this. So I, I just started playing piano again on my own. My parents uh, were awesome enough to find a great piano teacher. I had started with a, you know, kind of just a, a basic neighborhood school piano teacher but then you know they were to find someone who was really amazing and kind of put me on the path to where I am today by finding me a composition teacher helping me get into interlocking for one summer and put together a portfolio and put together my college application for a music conservatory so you know the the reason it's complicated to tell this story too is you know on the side of all this I was always just playing with computers and playing with music and computers and and uh playing with notation software and sequencers. And, you know, I worked a whole summer uh, when I was uh, 15 to, to buy my first synthesizer. So, you know, at the time it felt very separate. On one side, I was like playing with orchestras and 
learning how to write classical music, quote unquote. But at the same time, you know, a hobby was just kind of futzing around with electronic music. And so, you know, it's really interesting that when I arrived in LA years later, I kind of looked back on that and said, oh, how serendipitous, you know, that I had these two parallel tracks running because it perfectly prepared me for what I need to do in LA. Uh, and what, you know, film scores need right now is, you know, everyone's looking for this hybrid sound, the sound of, you know, you, you need the power of the orchestra, but you also need really cool, interesting sounds and, and sonic textures. So I kind of grew up uh, without knowing it, blissfully unaware of, you know, that I was kind of building up a really great skill set for what I do today. That's, that's amazing. Uh, so you mentioned, what was the first instrument you learned music on? Was it the violin or the piano? It, it was the piano. I never, I never played the violin. You know, I, I, I now wish I did, you know, cause, cause I write for violin all the time. So, you know, it's great to understand an instrument, but luckily as a brass player. So, so yes, piano was first. And then in school, just to be cool, because some of my friends were joining the band, because of course, that's so cool to join the, <laughs> the school band. Uh, at least that's what I thought was cool at the time. Uh, I had a friend who played trumpet, I had another friend who played saxophone, and then I played the trombone. So it was cool you know, for me to hang out with the band. And then, I, and then that led to playing in some youth orchestras and stuff like that. So, so I played both piano and trombone growing up. Do you remember the first song you learned on the piano? Oh gosh, you, you know that's a that's a, normally a great question, but for me as a total dork, you know, it was, it, it was just piano uh, uh, piano exercises. You know, I I didn't, you know, it's funny I didn't sit down because I loved hip hop music. You know, the first music that I fell in love with, what before you know learning about film music was hip hop, and so. I didn't associate the piano with hip hop. So it's not like I sat down at the piano and said, oh, I'm going to play some Snoop Dogg. You know, <laughs> like, which, you know, in retrospect, I should have tried. But, you know, I kind of had those things separate in my mind. So piano was one thing where I learned piano exercises and Beethoven and all the silly stuff that, that kids learn, you know, for Elise and all that stuff, you know. But then, you know, what I was listening to at that early time was very different. Okay, okay. I, I, I like that. Just because I was I was most the same way because I joined band uh, in school playing clarinet and uh, tenor sax. Uh, and I just remember listening to Beastie Boys and Digital Underground back in those days. And like, how can I play this on these instruments? <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear that Beastie Boys on clarinet. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, that's, uh, that's great. And so you went to school in the Northeast, right? Jersey or New York? Yeah, yeah. So I, I grew up in Jersey City. Mm -hmm. um, so high school there, all, all my school there. Uh, my whole, my, up until I was 18, I was in Jersey City. And then I moved to New York City. I, I went to Manhattan School of Music. And I lived there for four years going to, going to college. And then basically right after college, coming out to LA, you know, I miss New York now. I love the city. Um, now that I'm not completely broke, but when I was a completely broke student, New York started getting really difficult because it's an expensive town to hang in and, and, you know, the rent's high. So, you know, I found LA while, you know, LA is plenty expensive compared, compared to, you know, other towns across the US. LA was a little bit more forgiving in the sense of, you know, like uh, more sun, more palm trees, more warmth. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a little bit easier to be broke in LA, I feel. All right, yeah, and then I guess the Jersey and New York scene had a big influence on you with music. 
Um, you know, yes and no. It's it's interesting. You know, I um, there's plenty I owe to New York. I, for instance, I was an usher at the New York Phil for a while. So you know, the ability to like see free orchestral concerts was so amazing. You know, just to kind of be able to take that all in. And then um, obviously growing up with New York hip hop, you know, like uh, it's amazing that I did Straight Outta Compton. Um, and I, I grew up loving, you know, the Chronic and Doggy Style, the, those legendary albums. But, you know, I, I, my heart was with Biggie and Jay-Z. So, you know, to get more familiar with NWA when I was doing Straight Outta Compton was really awesome, you know, and, and I'm really grateful that they did look at me as, you know, some East Coast hip hop guy and automatically not give me the gig or something, you know? So, <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, part of me definitely, I owe a lot to the East Coast, but at the same time, I think what makes, you know, what makes this job so interesting as a film composer is, is you um, need to be, be prepared uh, for anything and, and just kind of be able to dive in. So I, I, by default, just developed a curious mind. And so, you know, from one project I'm listening to, you know, Louis Armstrong and his hot seven band. And the next project I'm listening to, uh, the folk music of Hawaii to the next project, you know, listening to, uh, you know, European classical music, you know, so, uh, you kind of need to develop, to do what we do, you know, you need to develop this hunger and curiosity um, or else you're just going to, you're not going to be able to do the work because, you know, you're going to come across a project that you might not be able to understand or, or comprehend or be a part of. So yeah, there's a definitely a little bit of New York in me, but I'm also maintaining that open mind and curious spirit. Right. So set the stage uh, for us. You're, you're out of school, you're moving from New York to LA, maybe you do a road trip and you arrive in LA and you somehow get uh, Tron Legacy, which was, was that one of the first big things you did? Yeah, it's kind of bonkers when you think my basically two and a half years after moving it to LA, I was starting on Tron Legacy. And, and it was bonkers then, it's, it's still bonkers now to think about, you know? And, and when I think back on, I remember I was, we were wrapping up the project and I was thinking to myself, like, how the heck did this all happen? Like, this is crazy. Um, but then I realized, you know, I really was in such a perfect position to be a part of that. So, um, and I'll get back to, you know, kind of the first steps in LA in a second, but just to talk about Tron for, for a minute, you know, what's interesting about that is, you know, uh, I checked off a lot of boxes, you know, they needed someone who knew the orchestra really well and had some film scoring experience, but was also open to their, to their music. Someone who's curious, but also someone who actually knew electronic music and knew how to produce it and, and be a part of it and, and not step in the way. So, so, you know, having someone on board who could sit down with their sessions and navigate it and not screw anything up and, and add to it and do cool stuff, that was certainly something that they appreciated. Um, but then also uh, Daft Punk want, didn't want someone who was so entrenched in Hollywood that they would come to the table with a closed mind saying, oh, this is how we do it in Hollywood. Here, you know, here it is, guys. You know, I'm, I'm going to do it this way. They wanted someone who wouldn't mind thinking outside the box and thinking, you know, like obviously it's a film score. We need to serve as a film score and, and do certain things. Um, so obviously, you know, people have pointed out, oh, there are some film scorey things in there. It's like, 
yeah, because it's, it's a film score. <laughs> but, um, but you know, they wanted someone who wasn't going to say, hey, this is just how we do it and just put them in a box. And then, and then finally, look, Disney, you know, this was a, a two-year process. They wanted to start someone early. And I really do believe that, you know, the backup plan was, you know, yeah, like great, Daft Punk's great and all, but, you know, we're going to let them go and, and hire Hans Zimmer to score this thing. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the backup plan. And in fact, I was thinking, you know, we're going to get fired halfway through this thing and get replaced because how crazy Daft Punk scoring a movie. This is insane. Um, you know, so because of all that, I, I was, you know, I was young and cheap, you know, so I wasn't charging Disney a lot of money to, to do my job. So, you know, when you, um, I learned this lesson a long time ago, actually, from one of my first mentees out here in LA. He said, Joe, you're never going to get a gig if you're not the solution to someone's problem. And I think that was that was exactly right for Tron was that I was the solution to all these little problems. You know, they needed someone cheap. Uh, Daft Punk wanted someone um, outside the box, young, not not completely entrenched in their ways. But uh, but they also wanted someone who knew what they were doing. And so I I fortunately had the right set of skills plus the right uh, and I was at the right place in my career. Um, to do that. So things really lined up. Uh, but to get back to your initial question about LA, you know, yes, <laughs> there was a bit of a road trip, came out here. I, um, I was, there have been several moments in my life where I've been just ridiculously uh, lucky timing wise. And one of them was when I moved to LA, you know, I'd, I'd gotten into grad school at UCLA. Um, and and uh, I wanted to you know, I wanted to have an excuse to come to LA besides I'm moving to Hollywood. Um, and so I took classes at UCLA that fall, but I had this whole summer before. So I'm, I guess I moved out here in July of 2006. I was really fortunate to get into a program called the Mancini Institute. It is unfortunately, unfortunately no longer around. The year I went was the last year it was around. It was actually the 10th anniversary. It was only around for 10 years. And it was a full scholarship live a summer in LA. The classes were actually at UCLA. So I was like, great, I'm getting to know my campus already. And our like uh, teachers and faculty and RAs and staff, the whole staff was all LA um, royalty. Like, you know, like the, the people coming in to talk to us, you know, Michael Giacchino came in to talk to us. So like all these like, you know, incredible composers and musicians, you know, it was run by, um, uh, Dan Carlin was running it, who's an incredible legendary music editor. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of Patrick, the last name of Patrick. The, the guy, you know, he unfortunately passed away a few years ago. He's a legendary composer, Streets of San Francisco, and all sorts of other things. He was running the Institute. So, you know, I moved to LA and immediately got all this wisdom and kind of guidance. And then was also like meeting, like the musicians in it were like, all like future musicians of Los Angeles and future composers of Los Angeles and the people who were like on staff were like currently playing in orchestras in LA. So all of a sudden I'm meeting all these people, I'm making all these connections. You know, I get asked, Hey Joe, do you want to be an intern at a studio? I was like, yes, please. Thank you. And so through all these connections I was developing, plus some luck, I'd sent my resume into another studio. I had already, while I was a student, a couple of internships, and so the door cracked open and I kind of busted in because I had this skill set that was kind of great for the studios where um, I was trained in music. So I could like write down music and prep charts and prep MIDI and do all sorts of 
uh, useful stuff for composers. But, you know, I think as you could tell too, I have a pretty, you know, fun and fun demeanor. Um, and I think, you know, that's uh, kind of an elephant in the room sometimes with young composers that, hey, you need to be, you know, socially like aware of like how to be present in a room, but not over present and add, you know, add, add value to that room. And, you know, I, I took out the trash, I made coffee, I went and got coffee. I, I, no job is too small. So I think, you know, that's part of, you know, going in the door, you have to be able to do anything. And then over the next two and a half years, I worked with so many composers freelance that I had a lot of people get to know me and get to know what my skill set was that really all it took for Tron to happen was one of the composers Staff Punk met with when they were thinking about scoring Trons simply said to them, oh, you need to call Joe and gave them my number. And, um, you know, because I had that demeanor of, hey, I'm up for anything. Uh, but I also had this particular set of skills as I like to jokingly say you know like uh you know I had this particular set of skills that kind of was perfect to be plugged into Daft Punk so to speak and to help make this all happen well you know um I read an interview where you said that when you combine orchestra and electronics there's a real chance it's going to fall flat on its face now um it's a shame that the Henry Mancini Institute didn't last more than 10 years but Tron Legacy is celebrating its 10th anniversary so it's the world is a better place with that music in it. And uh, you are a big contributor to that. Um, now, if I'm not mistaken, you, you're credited as orchestrator on, on the film. Is that correct? Uh, orchestrator. Uh, it's, it's music arranged and orchestrated by. Yeah. Okay. So at one point you brought Bruce Broughton in to help you because you mentioned he's your mentor. Where did you first meet him and how did you, uh, how did that relationship begin? With all the tie it all together, I first met him at the Mancini Institute. He was one of the guest lecturers, and I, sp I had a lesson with him, and it was an incredible lesson. Um, he actually did do some teaching at UCLA at the time, but I missed his class because I actually, I, I wound up getting my degree, but I, I took some time off from UCLA because I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I took some time off from UCLA because I was working so much. And some of the faculty hated me for that, but I eventually came back, finished my degree. But so I had, I'd started developing this relationship with Bruce and I've always been someone who is passionate about writing for the orchestra and arranging. And I was so lucky that I had an incredible orchestration teacher at the Manhattan School of Music who, you know, again, just, just, just in terms of luck, you know, he, he taught, you know, several generations of incredible composers uh, orchestration at the Manhattan School of Music since the seventies. And, uh, you know, rest in peace. He, he passed away right after I left. It was, it was so, so tragic. He went very quickly. Cancer. Uh, Giampaolo Bracali is his name. Some legendary, legendary orchestration teacher uh, and composition teacher um, who, yeah, taught him and had school music for 30 years. So anyway, I had this, I have this great appreciation for orchestration. And then when I had my lesson with Bruce, I realized, you know, he was helping, he could help get me to the next level. Of orchestration and arranging and so I made it a point to study with him privately I actually took many private lessons with him and then how it worked with Tron was you know LA and Hollywood is very political um, it's uh, you know and and what's important is one needs a sense of awareness of uh, as, as Ernest Hemingway might call you know the a bullshit factor bullshit detector <laughs> and um, you know, I knew that, you know, look, I was doing Tron, let's see, when we were orchestrating it, um, I was 25 years old. 
Um, wow. And I knew that um, Disney was going to feel uncomfortable about that. And even Daft Punk would feel a little uncomfortable about that. Here's someone so young, uh, so inexperienced, orchestrating this major motion picture. I, I, had, I had the keen sense if I wasn't smart about this, it would get taken out of my hands and someone else would orchestrate it. And I didn't want that to happen because Daft Punk and I had already done such a good job protecting this music and developing this music from the ground up. However, talking to Daft Punk about this too, you know, they, you know, they said to me at one point, hey, you know, wouldn't you benefit from working with an experienced orchestrator? Um, and I, that was kind of the perfect moment to pull out that card and say, well, you know, it's great that you say that because I've actually been studying with Bruce Broughton, who's a legendary composer and, and orchestrator. And uh, how would you feel about him supervising me and, and looking at all my charts? And, you know, Bruce brought so much to the table. There are a few moments in that score. There's like a brass build in the flashback queue where, you know, like I'd send, what I would do is I would do my first pass and then I would send him the Sibelius file, you know, just we, I was using Sibelius and he happened to use Sibelius as well. Um, and he would tweak the orchestration based on the demo and send it back to me. And then I would kind of do a final pass. And there were, there were definitely times where he would try something. And I would look, oh, no, that's not going to be what Daft Punk likes. And I would undo it. But the flashback cue is definitely one moment where he did this really cool thing with the horns and the trombones that I was just looking at like, wow, that's going to be amazing. And it was definitely one of the most <laughs> amazing moments in that uh, recording process. So, um, you know, I owe a lot to Bruce. Um, but I also owe a lot to Disney and to Daft Punk for believing in me that, that I could do this, you know, just with a little bit of help. You know, they could have, it was totally within their right to say, you know, no, we're going to hire someone else. But uh, yeah, I feel very, very fortunate, very lucky that, that it played out the way it did. And, you know, I, it was definitely partially due to me being smart about it and having the foresight uh, to, to, to think ahead. But uh, that's a good lesson for everyone, you know. Well, obviously, they believed in, enough in you to let you do the TV show. And then following the Kaczynski train is you, you now go from orchestration to com composition with uh, Oblivion, um, which I hope this doesn't take anything away from the work you did. But it's more of the same but different with electronics and, and, uh, and symphonic cues. So how was that transition going from the you know, next one? Great. Uh, yeah, that's that, that's something great to talk about because, you know, there was there were several years in between, you know, it was but it was right at the end of Tron when I just happened to be walking out of the mix with uh, Joe Kaczynski and and he said, hey, Joe, you know, like I'm developing my next movie and I really want to I'm thinking about bringing in M83. Would you want to work with him and, and work on that score with us? And I, I said, of course, that sounds incredible. You know, so I really owe owe it to Joe for for putting us together. And in fact, you know, it was uh, 2011, early 2011, I think when I met Anthony um, through Joe, you know, he set up a meeting and Anthony brought, uh, sorry, and I should be clear, Anthony Gonzalez, who basically is M83. Um, Anthony brought a bunch of demos from the new album he was working on. And he said, yeah, I need orchestra for this. And I said, oh, I'd, I'd love to work on this with you. I'd love to provide the orchestra. And so, you know, even before we did anything on Oblivion, we developed a working relationship, working on his album, recording the orchestra for that, um, you know, knocking on wood, just looking back on that, you, you know, just thinking back to how lucky I've been, you know, that was a huge successful album. 
um, licensed so many times that orchestra is heard in, in so many trailers and, and commercials <laughs> and projects, you know, it's really humbling. You know, there was a, there was a period where I, you know, if I turned on the TV, I would just, you know, my head would kind of turn. I was like, wait, that's my, and it was like, oh yeah, those are the strings I did for, for Oblivion, or it's not Oblivion, excuse me, for Hurry Up, We're Dreaming for, uh, for Anthony Gonzalez. And so it was really uh, just a whirlwind ride. And then we get to doing Oblivion. And, you know, at that time, you know, what, what had basically happened was Anthony started providing some demos. Um, some were working incredibly well. Um, and, but he was unfortunately at the height of his, or fortunately, I should say fortunately, he was at the height of his popularity uh, with that album cycle with, you know, Midnight City being such a huge hit playing all across the country on, on, on top, you know, hot top 100 or top 40 radio, whatever the term is. Um, that he was on tour most of the time we were recording, we were uh, uh, writing that score. So that's where I had to step up as a composer a bit more and really help get that project across the finish line. I, and, and I hope, I hope, you know, everyone understands that's not taking away anything of what uh, the incredible music that Anthony contributed to Oblivion. It was just a, a more interesting uh, collaboration because he had to be on the road uh, so much touring that, you know, I would start a cue send it to him he would you know be in the back of his tour bus on ableton kind of you know adding ideas and adding sounds and editing stuff and tweaking stuff send it back to me and i ha i would have to implement that and you know it's a good point to kind of talk more about being an assistant you know like you know being knowledgeable about all this software i had to i was using about three four different kinds of software to kind of interface with anthony um on oblivion and so it's a great point to say hey i yet another reason why I was perfect for the job, but also for anybody listening who's a, an aspiring film composer, you know, knowing all this kind of software makes you really valuable to the process because I was able to, you know, work in Ableton Live, work in Logic, work in Pro Tools. You know, we, you know, my music editor at that time, he was in Pro Tools, I was in Logic, Anthony was in Ableton. So, you know, we're crossing the streams here between all this different software. <laughs> Uh, you know, trying to make this score work. And at the end of the day, you know, it worked great, but it was definitely a lot of heavy lifting on, on many people's part. Well, I, you know, I, I love the Oblivion uh, album and, and Brian and I do a lot of um, interviews with composers who do, who have Mondo releases and that the Mondo release of Oblivion is just phenomenal. Um, you know, the packaging really does the music justice and, and vice versa. But um one of the things that we like to do is when we talk to composers is, you know, ask them questions behind the scenes and things that, um, you know, what makes one project very unique from another. And one of the ones that stands out in your, your resume is, is the raid and that having been scored by an Indonesian composer before Sony acquired it. Uh, how did you even think or, or want to, you know, score it? Did you watch and listen to the music? Did you watch it without the music? Did you, uh, what was that process like? This is a great story to tell because, you know, the raid was a bit of a whirlwind. You know, the, the movie was um, already can, already very highly regarded internally at Sony, who had picked it up. And, um, you know, they were thinking of, oh, what can we do to make this American release more special? And so the music team had the idea of, oh, let's get like a really cool artist like Mike Shinoda. You know, like the, the music supervisor was a big fan of... Uh, Fort Minor, uh, which is one of Mike's uh, solo projects. Um, and Mike had seen Tron in IMAX while he was on tour in Australia the previous <laughs> year. And I also just happened through my agent to meet with that music supervisor just as a 
personal meeting, like, you know, my agent said, you guys should meet, you know, and I think, I think they had in mind, I think he, the music supervisor had called my agent and said, oh, might want to talk to Joe about this. So, you know, it's just a general meeting, get to know each other. And so it was this crazy moment of triangulation, which, you know, and yet another good lesson to know, like, you know, things usually don't happen when it's just one-to-one. Uh, -one. It really helps to have multiple points of contact, meaning, you know, Mike went in to meet on the project and uh, here, this, so this is Keir Lehman, uh, music supervisor who was at Sony at the time said, oh, Mike, you know, like, do you need help scoring this project? What do you think? And Mike said, yeah, I'm, I'm really going to need help. I you just saw Tron and it was like the coolest thing ever. Who's the guy who did that? <laughs> you know? And so um, it was this perfect moment that, you know, Keir was like, oh, well, I just was talking to him about this, Joe, like, let's make this happen. So, you know, we didn't watch the film with the original score. We got the film without any score and just dived in and scored it. And, you know, it's a miracle it all worked out because we kind of just dived in scoring it on our own. Mike has incredible sensibility. Um, you, you know, he, he definitely like undersells himself saying, you know, oh, I, I really need help. I'm, you know, I need, I've never scored a film, but no, he has like great dramatic sensibility. So he would score scenes and I would look at them and be like, this is great. I, I'm just going to add this. I'm just going to add this or that. And what's, what was really fun about that process was when I ran out of ideas, I would send a cue to him. And when he ran out of ideas, he would send a cue to me. And so we had this really cool flow going um, where we were definitely, you know, I would approach some scenes, he would approach others, and then we'd flip off and, and trade. And so there's a bit of me and a bit of him in every cue, uh, which was just so, again, just thinking back to that, that was 2011, I was barely 26, 27. It's, it's amazing to think back to doing that at that age and on a film like that. Um, but here's what's interesting. So, you know, we go through this, we send the music to Gareth, the director. He had a few notes, but was really happy. And, um, you know, and I think rightfully so, because he was already, he was already in, in the Indonesia. He didn't want to rock the boat. You know, he knew Sony was taking, you know, the reins with, you know, rescoring this quote unquote. And for me as a film composer, I, I kind of feel terrible, like replacing another film composer. I mean, that is, you know, not something I try to do, you know, that's not something I aim to do is to replace another composer. It was just obviously the situation I was put in. So cut to, uh, I think it was South by Southwest. Uh, so we're in Austin, um, doing some interviews. And at that point I met Gareth, the director several times, first at Sundance and now at South by how amazing to have this adventure. Um, and we were in an interview and someone had asked him, oh, you know, so you scored this film twice. You know, you had the score with your Indonesian composers, their duo uh, down in Indonesia. And, and so you scored it with them and you've scored it now with Mike and Joe, which one is your favorite score? Which I think was, you know, kind of a funny question for someone to ask, you know, it's like, what, this, what is this director gonna say? And he said, he said something really interesting. He said, you know, um, my favorite, my favorite score would be bits of both. He said there are parts of the quote unquote American score that work great, but there are parts of the Indonesian score that I miss. And I, I thought that was such a great answer. And you know, I kind of put that in the back of my head, like, oh, that's so interesting. So cut ahead a couple of years to Raid 2. And Mike is busy on his album um, on with Linkin Park. He's unable to be a part of it. So Gareth calls me and says, hey, Joe, how would you feel about working with my Indonesian composers. And I said, 
yeah, like, let's do it. <laughs> you know, how fun is that? I, I don't know anyone in Indonesia. Like, you know, like I, <laughs> Gareth, Gareth, yeah, sure. I know Gareth, but he's Welsh. She doesn't really count. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so that was some of the, Ray 2 was actually some of the most fun I've ever had because it was compressed into four weeks. It was insane. Um, the composers got an Airbnb right down the street from my house. Gareth got another Airbnb also in the neighborhood and he's editing the movie on his laptop, you know, sending us cuts. We're scoring from about 10 AM to 6 PM every day. The composers were all in the same room. This is nuts. I'm on speakers. One of the other composers is on, um, we have rented an iMac and we put a bunch of plugins on it and he had headphones and the other composer had a laptop his laptop and he had headphones and we were literally, we would literally be working on three cues at once. <laughs> and then they would print them off as audio and I would bring them into my main system. And like at 6 PM or so we'd flip over into saying, we need to finalize these cues. So we'd all work together and I'd add some sounds. They would mute some of my sounds. We would do all this crazy stuff. And then, you know, around that same time, Gareth would come over with his laptop, he would be editing the film in the back of the room. He would be editing the film sometimes. We were like, hey, Gareth, we need to work. You know, just don't, don't bother us right now. But then it, it was just the, some of the most fun I've ever had because in one month we scored this. And, you, you know, here I, here I was thinking, oh, yeah, the raid two, it's going to be 90 minutes, you know, no problem, you know, easy. You know, it was two and a half hours long, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, so there was a lot more music, a lot more stuff to be done, a lot more. But, but man, that film, you, you know, I was kind of blindsided by how cool that film was. I was, I remember watching it going, wait, what is Gareth trying to do here? And then, like, only after several weeks did I realize, like, this is amazing. So I don't know if you guys are big fans of The Raid too, but I, I just think, you know, what Gareth did was just so amazing oh for sure it's in probably the top three action movies and like you know uh, mafia movies of all time and you know when i ever talk about fight choreography or fight scenes and then music with fight scenes raid 2 always comes up i remember mm. vividly the screening i went to of that and i was like holy shit that was one of the <sighs> best things i've seen <laughs> that's great to hear and, and you know part of that is due to how gareth films you know when they when they did the raid movies they would spend months choreographing and working up to the shoot which i find really um refreshing because so many films you know they just kind of they, they don't wing it they, they they obviously plan things and have previs but so many quote-unquote big budget american whatever blockbuster movies you know the script's changing forever and things are always in the air and so many of these fight scenes you know you look at and not to rag on Marvel or anything, but a lot of those fight scenes, you know, are just pure VFX, you know? So um, to see a filmmaker working in a way where they are literally spending months with the actors choreographing, but also the crazy thing is, you know, everything they're doing is so rhythmic based. So first of all, the fight has an inherent rhythm. So for them to properly learn their moves and to work with each other, they have each fight has a rhythm where there's a feel and a groove to each fight and how they're punching and blocking and doing all this stuff. So there's that. Secondly, Gareth is with, I forget, you know, whether it's a Canon or whatever, he's got, you know, a simple camera setup and he is filming these as they rehearse and then editing them. So he is basically not only rehearsing 
the fight, but he's rehearsing the film. He is rehearsing the cuts. So by the time he's shooting, quote unquote, the final, he's already done it before. He's already edited this before. So when we get the cut, when we get the edit, it is so precisely edited that there is this internal rhythm that, you know, what I would find is to approach a fight scene in the Ray 2, I would watch it two or three times, kind of just kind of learning the internal rhythm, tapping to it, or like, you know, just kind of understanding the cuts. And then only then would I start making music to it once I internalized the rhythm, because they've spent months developing this. There is an internal rhythm. I just need to kind of tune into in, into it. So the film kind of scored itself from that regard. You know, Gareth made it so easy. Um, I, I feel very lucky. No, that's awesome. And speaking of uh, some of the fight scenes and stuff, you worked on Jean-Claude Van Johnson with the legendary Jean-Claude Van Damme. Some of the best promo ever, some of the best, you know, I love the score and the promos and in the show. Can you talk a little bit about working on that? Oh man, you're making my day here because I, I very rarely get asked about that show and it is one of my favorite projects I've ever worked on. Um, you know, I think unfortunately it was just kind of a victim of, you know, early Amazon, the score, you know, the score itself is available only on Amazon. So you can't get it in Spotify or iTunes, which is a little heartbreaking for me I, I, because I'm so proud of that score. You know, I got called in um, to work on that. Um you know, let's do an edit here because I, I'm so spaced out. Oh, Peter Atencio. So I got called in to work on that by Peter Atencio, the filmmaker who, had, who was a fan of The Raid and other projects I've worked on. Um, and, you know, he sat me down, read, read a script, watched some early, early footage. And, you know, it just kind of struck me right in the heart because this wasn't like an 80s throwback. It was like a late 80s, early 90s throwback to like kind of, the golden era of John Claude Van Damme and like the movies that, you know, I grew up watching Bloodsport and yes. Kickboxer, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. so you know, to, to kind of see that, you, you know, I actually like went on a deep dive. I, I, I pulled out, you know, I think I mentioned early in our interview, you know, how I spent a whole summer saving up to buy, you know, my first synthesizer. You know, I actually pulled that synthesizer out and I eBayed, got another one, and I got like a whole set of like these weird 90s synths, you know, because they're very different from 70s and 80s synths. So I got these weird 90s synths, resampled them. I did all this work. And I think, you know, what we came up with at the end of the day is this really fun hybrid between like the look of the project and the overall feel of the score is definitely modern. But there are so many touches and nods and like turns of the cap to those vintage Jean-Claude Van Damme films, just like there are in the script as well. Um, and it also helps to have an actor who loves to make fun of himself. You know, he, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but I actually, you know, remember going to the theater to see JCVD which back is, in 2008, yeah. yes. um, um, which was incredible. So, you know, I was already very well aware of his vibe and, and, you know, what, you know, he like, you know, he knows exactly who he is. And, 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 and I was just so thrilled that Peter asked me to be a part of this. Um, and then to get to know Dave Callahan and the producers over at Scott Free, it was just, it was a very special, like, if I can recall correctly, it was like a, it was like a summer to do the pilot. And then we had to wait a while. And then I think it was like later that year to do the rest of the, and it was only six episodes. And the funny backstory about that is, you know, Peter 
and Dave, you know, so Peter Atencio, Dave Callahan, you know, this was kind of their brainchild. And, you know, talking with them about this was so much fun because they are very similar to me. You know, we're all around the same age. We all have these memories growing up with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And, you know, we're all kind of having this conversation about this is not a multi-season thing. This is like one crazy season. And we were like, if we're a huge hit, like, we don't know what we're going to do for season two. Because, like, this is just so bonkers, you know. But, uh, you know, lo and behold, Amazon puts out John Claude Van Johnson, season one. And we're like, eh, season one, okay. And it wasn't a huge hit, unfortunately. <laughs> and so, you know, then the news comes out, we're canceled. You know, and it's like, come on, we were never planning on season two anyway. So, like, <laughs> let's just enjoy this this magical like little time machine box we created, you know? So yeah, it's something I'm very proud of to this day and I wish more people got to know. So if any listeners out there are, if any of this sounds interesting, go, go dig it out on Amazon prime. It's really fantastic. For sure. And did you get to talk with uh, Jean-Claude at all? You know, I had one opportunity to do that and I totally blew it uh, because um, you know, as film, the funny thing is film composers, you know, like, you know, I get asked sometimes, hey, Joe, like, you know, film composers are notorious for doing, you know, all these projects at once. You know, do you just do one project at a time? And I say, I try. Like, I do my best to, like, arrange my schedule. But inevitably what happens is, you know, you do your best to arrange your schedule. And then everything goes to, goes to hell. Because, like, uh, you know, prod, when you're in post, post kind of expands and compresses. You know, they say where we finish the shooting in January and the film comes out in December and inevitably they'll say, we're going to wrap in July. And so you plan your schedule. Oh, we're going to go until July. Um, you know, and then they go, well, you know, oh, visual effects are taking too long. We needed to do a reshoot. We need, no matter how good the movie is, by the way, the movie could be a masterpiece. It's just inevitable that, you know, it expands to take up more time. That's just how it is. Um, and so, you know, you thought you would be done in July. And well, lo and behold, the film comes out in December. You're not going to be done until October, probably at the earliest, you know? So, you know, I, that's what basically happened. I was, you know, get a call, Joe, come to the rap party. JCVD is here, you know? And I'm like, I, I need to deliver cues. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm locked <laughs> in the studio, you know, working on something else. So, you know, it was a bit heartbreaking, but you know, that is unfortunately the reality of the film composer. You know, we tried dead our dedicate ourselves to one project at a time but or at least I do but then inevitably you know things crash into each other like for instance the raid 2 you know there were a few weeks on that project I was talking about this magical month I think the first two weeks of that month you know I was getting up at five six in the morning to finish a video game project so by the time the guys would come over at 10 a.m 11 a.m noon I would be free to work all day with them so it was a bit of uh madness um but that is unfortunately what tends to happen with our with our jobs you know especially in post-production my friend said to his kid he said his kid was like oh i'm thinking of being an editor and he said no 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 like go work on set because set like they can't extend you know production two months you know that just doesn't happen because the actors aren't available and it's too expensive but post-production, they could just say, you know, screw it. Let's just, just go another two months. <laughs> so. um, one of the projects, uh, trying to loop back Disney into this, one of the projects recently you had was uh, Lady and the Tramp. And that involved you uh, dealing with Charlie Bean and developing the musical palette for this, which was New Orleans-based and tried to capture some of that Disney magic. Can you 
bring us on like a little road trip of um, trying to bring two different musical styles together for this love story. That's really an awesome project to, to talk about. And it all goes back to Tron, right? Because Charlie Bean is uh, <laughs> the incredible showrunner and animator of, of Tron Uprising. So that's the connection there. And, and you know, it's re really awesome to get that call from him because, you know, uh, repeat customers are, are great. You know, it really is a vote of confidence in, 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 in your work, you know, when that happens. And then also to have, to have Disney support and really you know, it was really interesting to graduate, so to speak, into a film like that with Disney, where Disney really, from the beginning, was confident in what I was doing and encouraging and allowing us to do all sorts of incredible stuff. Like, before I wrote a note of the score, we went down to New Orleans, and this is before the film was even shot. Um, we went down to New Orleans to capture some music. And part of that, obviously, because, you know, uh, I jokingly call Lady and the Tramp one song short of a musical. You know, because there are several songs. And so, you, you know, it, it was one of these moments where, you know, having coming off of Greatest Showman, coming off on, on some other musical projects, it was really rewarding to kind of be able to, you know, not only score the film, but to produce the songs and to kind of help oversee like the, whole, the, the gathering of all the music together. Um, but really, it started with me and Charlie hanging out at our local bar because he's he, he used to live right down the street from me. So, you know, we have this local uh, dive bar that we love hanging out at where it's like us and a bunch of truckers, uh, essentially. <laughs> um, and the beer is very cheap. Um, and so, you know, we would just sit down and <clears throat> excuse me, we'd, we'd sit down and just talk about, hey, you know, why does this movie, why is this movie going to exist in 2019? You know, like, um, you know, how do we make ourselves relevant again? How do we make, um, how do we, how do we make the music part of the story? And I think that kind of just that point in, in and of itself summarizes, you know, my entire, what's become my mantra as a film composer is, is you know, how does film music tell the story? Um, you know, because any, you know, I could sit down and write cues for days, you know, like that's, you know, what I'm trained to do, but, um, how do I write cues that really become part of the film that make it a different experience that improve it in ways that, um, if it was just me writing random cues, you, you, you know, that, that it wouldn't be nearly as, as, as impactful. So, you know, it's really important to me to have those meetings with the filmmaker to sit down and say, hey, how do we make music present in your film to make it really special? And so those early conversations kind of led us down this path to say, well, what time period does this film take place? And, you know, 1910, 1915. And I, if I'm trying to recall the exact nature of the conversation, but when something like, well, you know, I said to Charlie, it's interesting at that time, phonographs were very rare. You know, they existed, but, you know, a phonograph uh, player at about that time cost the same as a Model T. So, you know, not, not everybody, you know, very few people, so to speak, have, have access to recorded music. It's just not a thing. So music is very much alive. People have pianos in their houses. People have, you know, have guitars. People sing. People perform. People dance. Like, music is alive. And in fact, you know, I think that led to a change in the script where if you notice in the film, you know, Jim is playing piano, um, you know, Jim is a composer in the film. He's a songwriter. And there, there's a cut, there's a, a scene cut from the film where I had to go, I was on set and I had to like, 
do 20 copies. It was so annoying. I, I, I had written this theme, you know, and, and the idea was to have Jim play it on the piano. And so we taught him how to play it on the piano and he was writing it with a pencil. And so I had to do 20 copies because props, they can't just have one copy. They need multiple copies because <laughs> he's going to write on it and erase it and they're going to have a camera. You know, so I, I wrote out in my hotel room in Savannah, Georgia, 20 copies of this theme that I had written you know that was so you know a little behind the scenes moment for lady in the tram um you know so music we just we want to make music very alive in the film and part of that too is what are the popular hits today and you know that led us to new orleans that led us to louis armstrong that led us to um early you know black american music uh early jazz you know it it, it was really like this magical moment for me because you know like i like to say uh to people you know i'm we're nothing if not authentic so it's really important for me to engage with you you know we engage with an arranger and producer um who works a lot in new orleans named sarah morrow who produced a, a lot of um who's produced a lot of music down there a lot of dr john's uh music actually and you know has connections to all the musicians so she was able to help line up a studio. I'd never been to New Orleans before. I didn't know any musicians there. So she was able to line up a studio, gather together like the all-star, the most amazing band of musicians I've ever had in front of me. I think, you know, from Nicholas Payton on trumpet, uh, Lucian Barberin, rest his soul on, on trombone. He, he just passed away a few months ago. Um, you know, just this amazing group of musicians who literally from the time they were, you know, they could walk, had been living breathing, eating New Orleans music. And, and, you know, one of the things we did was say, okay, he's a tramp. Can we pretend that this song is a standard from 1910? And can we play it like that? And of course, you know, that's what they did. You know, And, and so that's why, you know, the song is what it is. And, and, and you know, it, what's so fun about, about that is we then were working with Janelle Monet's team Nate Wonder was present at those sessions helping to produce that song. You know, he, he, he and Janelle ultimately produced that song for the film. And um, he was there overseeing the, the recording of that. And so that song became like a mashup between, you know, 19, the, the 19, uh, music of New Orleans in 1910, black music from New Orleans of 1910 meets, you know, current pop music. And so, you know, Oh man, it was, I'm just, you're just helping me relive this awesome, you know, <laughs> moment in time of my life where I got to like really dip into this amazing, authentic music. And then, you know, what I was able to bring to the table was, you know, from Lady's point of view, she is raised in this upper middle class household, very proper, very trained, you know, what music is going to, you know, is going to represent her. Well, you know, we decide that's going to be classical music. You know, so, so, you know, it's going to be more refined. So I was looking into, you know, uh, Americana, Aaron Copeland, early, you know, basically early American classical music. Um, and, you know, Tramp's music grows out of the music of New Orleans. It's improvised. He's from the street. He's, you know, he, he, he likes to do things his way. So, you know, it was then fun to take all this together and weave it together throughout the film. So as they go on the dinner date, the music comes together. So, um, you know, it sounds like uh, it might sound like I'm a bit of a bad man talking about this, but you know, when it when it all it, when it all came together at the end of the day, it's something I'm just incredibly proud of. That's awesome, and it was a good juxtaposition of, of themes, so uh, I, I enjoyed it. 
Awesome. Yeah, it's obviously very different from <laughs> the Ray and Oblivion <laughs> Tron, you know, but but it is something, you know, it, it, how lucky am I that I get to, you know, kind of hop between these really cool projects, you know, and then really have, you know, have such an exciting time in the studio where I don't do, do the same thing twice. Sometimes I, sometimes I say, can't I just do the same thing twice so I don't have to work so hard every movie, you know, like, can I just take <laughs> the sounds from that movie and put them in here? But, you know, then I'd be bored, you know? So it's just so rad that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm onto my third project this year, my third uh, big project of the year. And, you know, each of these three projects I've done have been so incredibly different from each other and have had, have required a completely different palette of sounds and musical ideas that it just keeps me, keeps me on my toes, keeps me excited, keeps me, interested and keeps you know musicians employed too it's awesome to kind of have all, work with all sorts of different musicians providing all sorts of different ideas and textures so how lucky no that's that's great because i think you know when I, you say stuff like that i think of stanley kubrick who made a movie in a different time period a different theme a different genre and you know with you joe going from you know the big action movies to something very new orleans romantic a uh, movie about uh, dogs, uh, to Arctic, to Oblivion, and even to Kelly Clarkson, you have a very diverse uh, resume. And that's like really cool to keep learning and keep doing and succeeding in all of that music. I think that's great. Oh, it's so great to hear you say that. Cause you know, you really just summed up the line I'm walking down, you know, I'm walking down this interesting line between, you know, on one side you have the art, you know, the art scene, the art music of Stanley Kubrick, you know, like you mentioned Stanley Kubrick, but you know, there's all sorts of films and projects we can mention that are very quote unquote art artistic, but you know, might not have as broad of an appeal. And obviously on the other side, you have maybe the marvels of the world and, you know, kind of the things that have such gigantic appeal that, you know, um, you, you know, I hate, I, I never want to say anything negative, but sometimes it's hard to find um, the really bold artistic, uh, choices that are being made in, in, in that kind of filmmaking. So I'm trying to walk this line, you, you know, that kind of, that has broad commercial appeal, but also has really cool artistic choices, really bold artistic decisions that kind of tug at you, tug at the audience, that force the audience to think about something. So, um, you, you know, sometimes I fall down on one side or the other, but the perfect project to me is something that kind of really just walks that that tightrope. I think, you know, I think for instance, Tron is a really cool example of that where, you know, you have these really cool artistic things that are being done, but at the same time, man, grab your popcorn. This movie's gonna be a lot of fun, you know? So um, it's, it's really exciting when I get to do that. No, that's great. Um, I, wanna, I wanna jump into some really fun questions with you. So uh, one of them is, what is your most thrilling music experience, both as a, a talent, as a composer, musician, and as a fan? Oh, wow. That's a great question. That is a really great question. You know, it, 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 it's hard to beat discovering something for the first time as a fan. So I'll answer the second part of that first. You know, I think, you know, so I think back to moments like when I was a student and going to hear Mahler for the first time at Carnegie Hall or or, you know, I, you know, I just remember hearing Snoop Dogg for the first time, you know, hear Doggy Style or, you know, like, you know, there are these moments where, you know, and I think one of the, um, one of the sad things about what I do is I get so into the music that it gets harder and harder for me to find those experiences because I have to 
listen to so much music and you know music is a job now so it really is amazing when i have these moments where i get to like discover something for the first time like when i you know like recently like i started listening to more period instruments and and you know if you listen to like uh uh uh, Monteverdi, for instance, played by John Elliott Gardner, you know, where, where they have these period instruments from Venice at the time. And, you know, your mind kind of, you know, my brain was kind of exploding when I, when I started getting into that. So in terms of a fan, you know, those, you know, anytime you have this, the door opens and, you know, the light shines on you, you know, that like, that's so cool. And then, you know, as an artist, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to beat that story I just told you with New Orleans, you know, just happy into that magic. But I think, you know, I think, that is something that I look forward to every time I, I get to get to record music with musicians. So for instance, just this week, man, we had, we were so lucky. We, we were actually able to record in Abbey road this last weekend for one of my upcoming projects called finding Ohana. And it was really amazing to see, you know, how hard everyone worked to make that happen at Netflix, at Abbey road, the musicians in London, because everyone had to be spaced more apart than usual. And you know the engineers worked really hard to make this sound work, and it was a, it was an awesome sound. Um, and you know it was frustrating I couldn't get on a plane and go to London and be there and conduct. But you know we were sitting in my studio with a direct feed, you know, listening live, um, and able to give feedback that way. But my mind kind of exploded when I you know heard how hard these musicians were working to make this session happen, especially right now in the current crisis we're in, and. Uh, you know, and to still make the magic happen. You know, it is it is amazing when you think of the musicians we work with that they spend their whole lives being able to essentially like flip a switch and turn something into a record. You know, it, it's it's incredible. So professionally, that's what gets me each time the 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 incredible musicianship we have access to. Awesome, that's really cool. Uh, another fun question for you: What is the most curious album or recording in your collection? most the strangest oh the strangest yeah you know I'm, I'm looking back you know i spent i spent time years ago digitizing my entire collection but i still have a few cds behind me i think if i walk back here you know this is one of those things where i have so much stuff you know it, it's just, it's just <laughs> hard to remember what's what but here i just pulled this one cool record out i got back in high school um Sonalia, and it basically is an attempt to recreate ancient roman music so uh, this, this crew of musicians uh, worked hand in hand with archeologists, um, finding, you know, trying to put together what are the instruments the Romans had? What are, you, you know, they tried to like find any written record of what the music was like and then recreate it. Now, of course, you know, the chances of it being completely accurate are very slim because <laughs> that music is so ancient, you know, it's really hard it's really hard to recreate, but, uh, but the fact is it is a dope record to, to check out. Um, so yeah, <laughs> Sonalia. When, when was that released? You know, I got this in high school. I think, this is from uh, 1999. Well, I thought it was 1999, 1996. Okay. Um, so really cool, huh? That, no, that is awesome. Now I'm really interested in that. Though. That is a, that is a <laughs> yeah, most curious out. album. <laughs> That is great. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's on Spotify now, but maybe not. Maybe it's only available on this 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 digital copy, or excuse me, this real physical copy here. Who knows? <laughs> That's great. Uh, and another one. Uh, let's see. Can you list a few of your um, few scenes from film 
uh, music moments specifically that have always stuck with you? Like you, you uh, saw a long time ago, like there's a big music moment in a film, like the scene. You know, man, um, you know, this is an interesting topic because as, as we all know, Joe Kaczynski is off making Top Gun and I'm not doing it, you know, which is a bit heartbreaking to me. But at the same time, I think it's also really exciting to hear what Harold Faltemeyer uh, is doing, you know, with Hans Zimmer on that. And it was interesting. I, as a kid, probably saw that movie about 80 times. You're um, speaking Mark's and, language. <laughs> oh, excellent, excellent. <laughs> so, you know, I think it was right when I found out Joe was doing Top Gun, I, I watched it again. I hadn't watched it in years. And... Um, the opening of that movie and then not just the opening kind of just the opening the whole sequence through where Maverick helps uh Merlin I think it's Merlin get back onto or Cougar that's right Cougar. Cougar Maverick helps Cougar come back onto the ship I realized you know something that someone said to me long ago that I didn't really start realizing until recently that someone said long ago that what you listened to when you were a teenager stays with you forever and so watching that scene and the aesthetics of that scene, musically and, and visually, kind of led me to realize like, oh my God, like watching this so many times when I was young, like really influences how I approach scoring, you know? So how that scene was scored. So that's like one, uh, one example. Um, another example, you know, I used to watch uh, Forrest Gump a lot. So that, you know, rewatching that to me reminds me of like how I approach emotional scenes um, uh, you know, of course I watched Star Wars a million times. It's, it, it's impossible not to be influenced by that, but it's interesting. John, I find John Williams' music so transcendent and so incredibly genius that it's very hard to be a student of it until you're older. Um, uh, it, you know, I'm finally, I feel like I'm at the point where I can look at one of his scores and start to understand the decisions he, the decisions he's making and it's important for us to remember you know he didn't do jaws until he was 40 you know <laughs> so he spent a long time in the trenches doing crappy movies um so anyway just a little side note but you know there's a lot you know i feel lucky oh another one independence day man why well, i used to watch that movie so often so you know like you know hearing kind of you know how david arnold approach those scenes hearing how nicholas dodd orchestrated things you know like whenever i watch that movie again i you know i'm I, it's like sometimes seeing a mirror up to you know some of the decisions i make you know it's kind of crazy oh that's great that's great and i like how you brought up uh john williams in star wars because i think there's a video online of you uh, playing the Imperial March in different uh, octaves and how one can be very menacing and one can be a little lighter, but you just know it's Darth Vader. That's looking. right. It's like a bonus from uh, the score movie, I think. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, that, that was great. I thought that was a really cool uh, explanation on how, you know, scoring works. <laughs> it, it does, man. You know, it's interesting. Like one of the most important things I've learned is not to overcomplicate things. You know, if you have a cool theme and it works, and you need it to be lighter, we'll just play it higher. 
we need to be darker, play it lower. You know, it, it's important. You know, we have to deliver so much music. It's important not to get, I, I think that's been one of my challenges because I'm walking this line between I'm trying to do really cool artistic things, but I'm also trying to have people, you know, eat a lot of popcorn, you know, it, it's walking the line between, you know, making something artistic and cool and, 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 and sophisticated, but you know, as, as, Another great Hemingway quote, the, the ultimate uh, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Yeah, there you go. Mark, any, any, any final questions? Uh, well, yeah, I was going to comment on the, the score movie. I've gotten to know the guys who put that together. And but between the score movie and the score podcast and now this John Williams, uh, this um, uh, blockbuster podcast that they're doing, it's, it's, it's trying to do great efforts to bring more uh, film music and stories between the composers and the filmmakers out into the public. And I just think that what they did is, is great and I was glad you were a part of it. Um, but more to that note, I think one of the, we love your music, we're so glad to have you on the show, but I think besides saying that we're fans and we love your music, one of the best quotes that I think I've ever heard about your music comes from uh, YouTube. I was, I was listening to the Raid score and uh, down in the comment section, I saw someone write, I get bruises just listening to this music. And, <laughs> and uh, I I just wanted to let you know that there's people out there who appreciate it, and I thought that would make your day. So um, oh, that's awesome! I you know there, there used to be something I say, and then I decided not to say it anymore because I I noticed Hans Zimmer says the same thing. So I said, oh, I need to stop saying that lest people think I I'm just copying him. But you know, he said you know he he said uh, uh, I'm a method composer, and uh, you know and he, he says it in jest, and I say it in jest too. But it really is important. I feel at least. To, for me to be able to do the art that I do is to really dig into a movie properly, to really understand a movie and to allow the music to come from a place within the movie rather than uh, outside of the film. You know, if, if I'm, I don't ever want to be accused of commenting on a movie. I want to be part of the movie. I want to be in the movie. I want the music to leap out of it. So that's, uh, that's so cool to hear you, hear you tell that story or, or tell, or tell me about that. Cause I had not seen that. And so I'm going to carry that one with me. That's a great, that's a, it's a great comment. That's awesome. Well, I, I guess my la my real last question for you is uh, because you've had in such a, uh, a varied uh, bit of experiences in the last 10 years. What movie do you think, or I'm sorry, what score do you think has lined up as closely at the end than when it, from when it started? Because the you know, oh, movies change all yeah. the time, but uh, yeah, what, what kind of that, found its way to be consistent? That's a, that's a great question. Cause I think I've said in other interviews how, you know, when you start a film, you know, you have this baby and you're trying to grow this baby into something beautiful. And sometimes you, you just get thrown off course and, and, and you're not able to reach it. Um, you know, I'd say Arctic is very close to what we had initially uh, envisioned um, for that film. I, I, I think only the brave is, you know, something that we fought very hard to be what, what it is. And in fact, I'm, I'm, what I'm really proud of, I'm really proud of all sorts of stuff in that, in that film, especially the, the ending, um, but also the song, because, um, you know, how many times have you seen a film for it to end with the hokiest song you've ever heard that has nothing to do with the film or the score? Well, you, you know, to me, you know, the song we have in Only the Brave really achieved something really powerful and that it is the theme from the film. It grows out of the film. It's the same textures and sonic ideas that were started in the film that just seamlessly go into this really powerful moment. Um, and so, you know, I'm really proud 
that we're able to protect that baby. You know, it's, sometimes it's easier than others, you know, but uh, that was a hard one with the kind of notes we were getting um, to kind of be able to get that one over the finish line. But I'm very proud of that. I know Joe's very proud of that, that one too, that, that film. Um, so yeah, there are, you know, there's, um, yeah, there, filmmaking is messy. You know, there, I think John Claude Van Johnson is close to what we had. Yeah. You know, what we had set out to do. I think that's due to, Peter Peter Atencio and Dave Callahan being like huge supporters of the score and like and fighting for it, um, um, uh, and and there there are definitely I've been lucky lucky to say that there are more of those cases than not in in my in my repertoire thankfully where you know because of the nature of the filmmakers I get to work with because of my um, the the amount of work I do on the front end so to speak the you know when things get crazy towards the end hopefully we've been able to maintain you know maintain uh the artistic integrity of the film but yeah you know unfortunately there are some where you know you, you can't so i we won't talk about those but that is a great question <laughs> well, great. wonderful well thank you joe for joining us on the unbalanced note uh is there anywhere you want to tell the listeners where to find you at online Oh, it's very easy to find me. You know, I've had since I was, I think, uh, in college, I've had Joe Composer as a moniker, you know, uh, so that's my website. That's my handle on every social media account, basically. I think I even joined TikTok <laughs> this month. Uh, not that I, I don't think I've posted anything, but I I need to get my, my Joe Composer handle. Um, so I joined <laughs> TikTok. So yeah, you could find me there. I have an email, either email address on my website. Yeah, the, you could literally email me there. So, you know, I, I try to be nice and, and re respond to as much as I can. I, it's impossible, but I, I try to be active and, and say hello to everyone. So yeah, thank you. That's how you can find me. Excellent. Excellent. And we are the unbalanced note. Uh, we're on Spotify and iTunes. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you for having me. <laughs>